I'm Charlie Melcher, founder of The Future of Storytelling. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the FOSS podcast. When you think of immersive theater, you most likely think of Punch Drunk. Called world-conquering theater rebels by the Evening Standard, and hands down the best immersive theater company in the world by Time Out, Punch Drunk is at the forefront of the movement to give audiences experiences that are active, multisensorial, and altogether completely unlike anything conventional theater offers. Their pioneering productions dissolve the line between audience and stage, creating an experience where it feels like anything is possible. With record-breaking and critically acclaimed shows in cities from New York to London to Shanghai, Punch Drunk is shaping the new face of theater on a global stage. Given Punch Drunk's incredible success and influence, it's a privilege to have the creative force behind it all, Felix Barrett, on today's podcast. Celebrated as a visionary who reinvented theater by The Guardian and others, Felix conceived, designed, and directed all of Punch Drunk's sight-sympathetic shows. I've gotten to be friends with Felix over the years, so I've asked him to give us a special journey through their iconic show, Sleep No More. He's going to walk us through the making of the experience from start to finish, and at every step, give us a peek behind the curtain into the creative process that resulted in this landmark production. We're in for a treat, so let's get started. Please join me in welcoming Felix Barrett. Felix Barrett, it is such an honor to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, Charlie, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. So I have to start by letting people know that the very first evening of the Future of Storytelling Summit, when we were having our VIP special dinner, we were doing it on the top of the McKittrich Hotel and then took 120-some-odd people down into sleep no more for a night that they will never forget. All of us were just blown away by that experience. And that was literally the first false thing. Wow. And we owe that to you. It was, it was an incredible memory. I should also say, I am a very proud member of your board and an investor in Punch Drunk. You sure are. And I am because I am so moved. I'm so, I'm, I'm also maybe your biggest fan. Like I am somebody who thinks that <laughs> what you've done is just brilliant and, and sort of changed the world. Certainly the world of theater and immersive experience. I mean, Sleep No More is one of those pieces that is, it's in the canon. You know, it, it's like one of the most important pieces in the world of immersive experience. I'd love to learn more about how it came about. Like, where did you come up with that idea? How, what's the story of, of this immersive theater piece, Sleep No More? Well, I think it all goes back to actually um, my days at university and doing a drama degree, but being a frustrated filmmaker. And uh, I'd been disillusioned with theater, yet studying it and trying to find the ways you could break the rules of it. Because I was going to see shows and thinking that actually, it's all quite elitist, and it seems theatre seems for the cast and the directors, but often the audience, the guys who are paying the money and the way in, were being forgotten about. And back in the days of um, Elizabethan theatre, you could, if you weren't enjoying it, you could throw cabbages at the performers and leave in a half. <laughs> and it felt like, that's fair enough, because they're the ones who are buying the seats. 
felt like I was going to see shows where I, which I found them stiflingly awkward, but you have to endure it because I didn't want to disrupt the etiquette of uh, theatre. And I should say, I love conventional theatre, but I just wanted to see where else it could go. How could you make it dangerous in the way that I felt it was when I was a kid? So I did a number of experiments at university, and it wasn't until my finals when I took over a disused territorial army barracks, and I finally getting to play with how you could disrupt and you know, break that rule set, and took the play Wojciech, a bit of German expressionism, and set it across this beautiful space, which was completely um, encroached with nature, like dilapidated, and so much ivy had grown inside this building that it had made tunnels of it. Lit it with candles, um, spread the, the action around the building, and then realized, oh my gosh, it's not going to work. Uh, well, how are the audience going to know who's performing and who isn't, and how they're going to know where to go, or how they know where the show is? And two days before we opened, has an epiphany one morning, thought, oh my gosh, if we put the audience in masks, suddenly they become part of the scenography, they disappear from view, it becomes theatre for one audience member with a cast of 12, and it becomes their own adventure. Uh, and that was the experiment I put on. Went and rented my local art department at university and pressed the, the masks myself, uh, cut them out, tried it out. It was for one night, um, and thought it was just going to be another experiment as part of my degree. I had some really interesting feedback, and people were sort of like, wow, that was kind of crazy. Like, I found I wasn't myself. Like, my personality shifted. I was, like, had impulses that I wouldn't normally have at the theatre and just carried on making experiments. What is that experience that people have when they have that mask on? Like, what do you think is happening? I think it's interesting. It actually, does relate to the lack of seats. So I think what I was frustrated was with, um, with conventional theatre is not what I was seeing, but the experience of going to the theatre, picking up your tickets, going to find your seat, sitting down, people rushing in, waiting for the lights to go down. It was so formulaic that it actually puts you in a place of relaxation because it's very predictable and always the same. And thus makes the audience very passive. That's fine and it's great, but it means that only a sort of certain chunk of your brain, the intellectual, the cerebral, is active to watch the show. And I wanted to make a theatre whereby the body's active, you're physically present, you've got adrenaline, which means that all your synapses fire up and your senses are in, you know, like in overload receiving. And like what happens when you're telling a story of that instinctual place, that visceral place, rather than the intellectual place? So to do that, remove the seats so they don't sit down. All the, the rituals of going to the theatre were took out. The mask is almost the equivalent to the theatre seat because without the mask, it would just be absolute pandemonium with people running around spaces and you wouldn't be able to know what's going on and we'd lose control of the show. It would uh, run away with itself. So by putting on a mask, it's the equivalent of sitting back in your theatre chair. It delineates you as audience, but it also makes you invisible because it hides your features and it means that... The entire audience look the same. So you're protected by the anonymity. And it empowers you to maybe be more brave, to, to come out of yourself or like to maybe follow instincts that you wouldn't do normally because, because you are anonymous. I also had never thought about it, but your masks have always been white and the lighting's often low. So the differentiation of height and body type and clothing kind of recedes into the shadows while the white mask 
is the thing that you see, and that's identical for every person. So everyone's exactly the same ghost. Absolutely. It's almost like, you know, like the theater tickets is inherently elitist. You know, the wealthy sit near the front and, you know, and those who don't sit for the back and have a worse time. And it's like, if I try and break those rules, create a meritocracy, give it back to the audience where if they're curious, you know, we, the, the old adage that we have in Sleep No More is like, you know, the more curious you are, the more you're going to discover. Fortune favors the bold. And actually, when we first started, it was, it was a Jacques Lecoq neutral mask which was devised as the most neutral mask possible, which meant that if you put it on, your physicality would determine your character. So if you're slouched or slightly sort of, um, you know, slightly um, in intrepid, like it would exaggerate your, like the mask would embody that and you would look nervous. But if your body is sort of forthright and you're open and warm and you're presenting that, the mask would then in turn sort of smile and look confident. And so we were really, in the early days, taking the idea that the audience were almost the chorus, the idea you could shift and mold and a shape-shifting crowd. And of course, they're there to bear witness, but they're also not allowed to speak, right? That's yeah. one of the other rules that you established. That was very important from day one, is that the mask had to be full, uh, had to cover the mouth, uh, so that we didn't want any chatting. We wanted a level of decorum where you'd be lost in the dream. And uh, the idea of people getting distracted and waking up from it was just um, always a disaster. And actually, over the years, the mask has shifted because it wasn't very breathable when we first had it. It was quite, it was almost a death mask. And so over the years, it's now evolved and it's now got almost a beak, which people think is Venetian, but it's purely come from practicality and as having something that's comfortable to wear whilst as neutral as possible. Mm. Okay, so let's go back to the story of creating Sleep No More show. You, you told us about some of the early experiments, and then how did actually Sleep No More come about? So prior to Sleep No More, I was trying to find other like-minded theatre makers in London, trying to find people who were interested in, in rule-breaking. And I managed to find one piece that was happening in London, which was happening in a disused master shipbuilder, Shipwright's Palace. And it was a dance piece because of all of the sort of technical um, and experiential progress was coming out of the contemporary dance world. And it was the last night, so I rang up saying, can I come and see it? I want to, um, I want to see this and meet other people who are making work out of theatres. And they said, well, I'm afraid it's totally sold out. So but please, please, let me, um, I just need, you know, I need to meet everyone. And I'd love to see the show, it sounds amazing. And they said, we're absolutely sold out. We can't, don't even bother turning up. But I said, but if you're making this stuff, well, we're running a competition at the moment. And in fact, it closes on, this is Saturday, and it closes on Monday. And they said, if you were looking for ideas for dance shows, if you submit an idea, we'll, um, if it wins, you'll get a producer and we'll help you find the money and put it on. So I thought, what can I do? And I quickly got out my um, grandfather's typewriter and wrote down the idea of telling the story of Macbeth as a Hitchcock thriller, um, but all of Shakespeare's language transposed to that of a contemporary dance. Anyway, so I wrote that. I thought, also, it's so atmospheric, how do I convey that? So rather than just send it in on an email, this is why I'd use the typewriter, I then got the typewritten bit of presentation, folded up, put it in a, in a sort of brown manila envelope, put it in my grandfather's old dinner suit in a breast pocket, put that suit inside an old leather suitcase, put some mothballs in, a few other props, <laughs> and dropped off the suitcase uh, the doorstep of the people running the competition. 
Um, <laughs> just literally try and be noticed. Say, hi, look, look at me. It was, right. it was terrible. <laughs> Luckily, it got picked. And, um, it won. <laughs> it won. And, um, and what's crazy is that then we got a brilliant producer, Colin Marsh, who then said, we're going to make this, help get a little bit of money. Like, um, at the time, it felt like a huge amount of cash. Uh, and together, we started to unpack the show. We put it on for two weeks in an old school building in South London. And we were really, like, we were almost beyond the fringe. We were so sort of, we were almost like underground art installation scene. And I remember on the last day, 100 people came to see it. And it had sort of snowballed from 20 to sort of gradually grown. We couldn't believe that so many people had come. So... What I'd love to do is to ask you to take us through the experience. So if someone gets a ticket to Sleep No More, they've heard that they should go do this thing, what's the first thing they receive? How do they enter into this experience? Well, ideally, the first thing is you don't know much about it. So I want audience to already feel a bit wobbly about where they are. They're actually checking themselves, going, is this the right street? Am I in the right place? And then as you approach the building, there really isn't any signage. It's like the opposite. We're trying to do the opposite to theatre. Rather than being up in lights, it's anonymous. And then as you enter, it's about the unknown. So it's, there's nothing telling you about how to do it. You don't really know. It's always about there's not quite enough light so you can see everything. So you're already having to switch on your other senses. Your sense of hearing should pick up. Your uh, sense of touch should pick up. And then you're taken upstairs, and then the first thing you go into, you hear a sort of film noir soundtrack. And so it almost is like the opening credits to a movie, and then you go into almost pitch black maze because it's about sensory deprivation. It's about really tuning you to the tone of the piece. And you're sort of, it's a, we call it the decompression chamber, but it's taking you out of the world of New York City and into the world of the show. And then you find yourself coming out of that into a bar in the 1930s. And you've, you've passed over to a dream world. Now, somewhere in there, you were given a mask, no? Not yet. No, that yet. hasn't happened. Okay. So what's, what's, what's so interesting, I think it's like maybe I'm laboring this because I think with this sort of work, if you start it immediately, for something that's experiential, and I think it's interesting now there's loads of other immersive shows everywhere, and the one thing that's very important to us is that it's a slow burn in. And we've tried shows before where the audience just walks straight in, get a mask, and, and they go, and it doesn't work at all. They're in the, same, the wrong headspace, and they're, they're, they've got a sort of energy that's not simpatico with the show. So with this, the show takes about sort of 15 minutes to gradually pull you under. It's almost like you're being submerged within the the mood of the show. So you enter this bar, it's like a halfway house where you're, is it present day, is it the 30s? You can buy a cocktail, there's the, the pace of life has slowed down. You get taken into a back room and so you're, yeah, you're plunging deeper and deeper. There, they give you a mask and then herd you into an elevator. And in that elevator, that's where the show starts. You're told the rules of the show, which are, Basically, from this point on, you're on your own. And then the audience are scattered across six floors of building, and it begins. And when you say scattered, I remember I went once with my wife, and we were pushed out on different floors. <laughs> I mean, literally, I, wasn't I thought we could do the whole thing together. And we were being led out, and I stepped out, 
and they stopped her <laughs> and she had to go to a different floor. That is a really important thing. We're trying to sort of explain without telling that it's better if you go by yourself because we wanted to, you to be empowered as an individual and you're going to have a much better time if you go and follow your own instincts, explore the building in your own time, follow the characters you want to see and then come back and meet your wife at the bar at the end and share your stories because... The whole thing has got 30 characters that are all, their narratives are playing simultaneously. So it's impossible to watch in one sitting. So it's almost a singular experience that becomes cumulative when you retell it after the show's finished. Interesting, so interesting. So, so I'm going to take us back into the building now, and and let's say yes. we've, we've just been pushed out of the elevator, and and, and we're alone, yeah. we're hidden behind our mask, we've got our cloak of invisibility on, and we start to explore. And what are you trying to have happen now for for your guest? Well, it's almost as though from this point on, you're free to go wherever you want to go, and we absolutely don't tell you what to do. It's about eighty thousand square feet with about 100 rooms, six floors. 80% of it is pure darkness. And so you can almost follow the light, but there's an awful lot you can't see, which means your imagination is filling in the gaps. I think it should feel sort of part fairy tale, part movie, part sort of fever dream. And as soon as you're spat out of the elevator, you've probably got four or five choices of where you go. You can follow the crowds, you can break away from the crowd. It's designed so that there are points where you really will look around and realize you're by yourself. Because essentially, it's almost like a gallery experience. It's like an installation art piece, but with live performers. And it's fascinating watching audience behavior. You get a chunk of audience who will go straight in and try and find the lead narrative. They'll know their, their Shakespeare and find Macbeth or Lady Macbeth. And you get another type of audience who actually avoid the crowds and like that big story, I'm one of these, and actually explore the space. And actually, if the crowd goes one way, you step into the dark corridor that no one's gone down. So that's, there's another tier of characters there. You'll get the sort of more peripheral resident characters who maybe don't have as big a role to play in the Shakespeare, but in our world have just as much to offer. And that's where the secrets lie. But you can literally there, you can almost let the design or the light or the sound guide you. And any one of those will sort of take your hand and lead you through. And then equally, you get a huge group of audience, like a third of the audience who are like, Whoa, what is this? And feel a bit sort of overwhelmed by the atmosphere and want to go back and find a bar, get a cocktail, sit down, watch the band. And that's completely valid too. And they're still in the world and it's still part of the show. So it's really for the audience to choose their own adventure and pick their route through the building. And none of them are the wrong answer. They're all right. And when you say go through the building, one of the things that's just so incredible is the set design and the level of detail. I mean, these are cinematic quality sets, but three-dimensional, and and you're free to touch anything and open drawers. And I just remember feeling like the world-building component was just as essential as anything else, if not more so. Like it was almost a character. A lot of the feeling of the experience and memory of the experience came from the way you felt in the rooms, temperature, smell, light, what you're walking on, what you're interacting with. Like talk about the world building. I, th- I think you've nailed it there with what it feels like. That is, again, going back to conventional play is you have an intellectual response to what's happening on stage. With this, I want you to have a sort of 
a visceral response to what you're feeling in every given space. So in every room, we're trying to trigger all of the, well, at least the four senses, if not the fifth, with taste as well in some places, um, so that you're, you're getting it at every angle. And so we want a living, breathing world, which actually, maybe it's like the definition of the word immersive, I think, is um, debatable and different people use it in different ways. But certainly for us, it's want it to be a world so thick that it's almost you're lost in the dream of it and nothing will wake you out of it. So in terms of the design, everything's touch real. Like if you can touch it, you know, there's a, a, a walled garden outside the Macbeth's bedroom with real bricks. Like actually the, the floor sags in that space with the weight of it. But if it were fake, you'd realize it was all artifice and it would have no meaning. But it has to be real. So when you trace your fingertips across it as the performers do, you'll get the brick dust in your fingernails. And it's about that tactile, real experience that just sort of means that you roll with it. You're, you're, nothing's reminding you that you're actually in New York. You could lose yourself and be in Scotland for those three hours. But the aesthetic is what you see, but as important as what you see is what you don't see. So the gaffer tape and the sort of building blocks of theatre, all of that is hidden. And even the lighting, we try and sort of pull into the world. So you just... You're um, as lost in it as we can humanly push you. So some people are exploring the rooms and just the maze of the building, and others are following the actors. And so talk about what, what's happening with the actors. So firstly, we call them performers because they're actually sort of a hybrid of some of the world's best contemporary dancers. That's their training. But often you don't see them dancing. You just see them. There is no language, so they're just living the narrative as if it were real, completely oblivious to the audience. So you might have one performer who's in a room, like, packing up their uh, belongings, um, and there might be 50 audience in there, but for that performer, they'll think they're alone. And yet, there are characters which are supernatural, or there are characters who are drugged. There are characters actually are dead, you know, poor Banquo's ghost. Um, those characters can then see the audience, are, are on the same plane as them, are aware of them, can look them in the eye, and even lean into them and touch them. And that's where the sort of theatrical language splits. If you've come across a witch, suddenly they can look you back in the eye, and that's where the real fun begins, because then they might become aware of your presence, reach out their hand, and if you choose to put your hand in theirs, they will take you away from the hubbub of the crowd and to a door that's been locked this entire time that no one's been inside. Take the key from around their neck, unlock it, and you get taken in and you get your own secret micro scene, uh, what we call the 101. First of all, I just think it's so powerful that it's, that it's a dance piece, you know, that the story is being... Um, told through physical gesture, through bodies. Uh, most people think of theater as, you know, frankly, primarily the, the dialogue, what's spoken. And, and yet here you're using this form that is predates spoken language. Is there a reason you think that immersive theater seems to have this connection to, to dance? Well, I think it goes back to the empowerment again. And um, 
if it's a physical language, it's open to interpretation, which means as an audience member, you use your imagination, you're more invested in it, you're layering in your own life experience, and it suddenly becomes really specific to you because it's through your own filter. Um, with language, it could be more on the nose, and that's the nature of language. It's, it has precision, but there's something that's really direct about a physicality. In the, in the same way that music can transcend any language, it doesn't matter, it can be, doesn't need to be translated, it just touches you. It's the same with gesture, whereas any language needs to be processed through the sort of logical part of the brain. I suppose it's, yeah, whether you're using the right-hand side or the left-hand side of your brain. And then there are moments when you can retreat to the bar, right? And you can come in, yes. have a drink, sit down. Everything else was pretty much walking and standing, but then you can kind of... yeah catch your breath in the bar, chat with someone yeah. else. And that's the one bit of like theatrical um, vocabulary, you know, like in terms of the formula, the interval bar that we've kept in, but you do need that, whew, that point just to be able to re-acclimatize back to get away from the atmosphere and just um, say, oh my gosh, what, what's happening? I don't know what's happening, go and get it. Or like, oh my gosh, have you seen this? Make sure you do that. I think that's quite an essential part of it. How long are people generally in the show and how do you sort of wrap it up? So then it's basically the max is about between two to three hours. And with the sort of spirit of empowerment, if people want to leave before, it's absolutely fine. It's like if you're going through a museum and you, I remember being a kid and wanting to go around the museums more quickly than my parents. So therefore, the same with this. If you want to leave early, that's totally fine. But for those who don't and are lost in it, we wanted to find a satisfying way to wrap it up. So we now always make sure we have a finale that actually sort of hopefully quite imperceptibly corrals the audience together, gradually switches off the building and pulls. So without them noticing, they come together as a collective body of audience in a sort of more conventional theatrical setup. And they all bear witness to the last scene, which sort of punctuates and rounds off the show. So it's almost like audience flow design where they start off as individuals spat out on different floors and gradually over the three hours they come together, they all witness the same thing. So what, no matter what you've seen, you all get the same final sequence. So they're unified again and they spill out into the bar, they can take the masks off and then begins the best part of the night, which is them trying to piece together the stories through anecdotally with their, their rest of their loved ones. And that is a huge part of it, right? Because now you're telling the story of your own experience. And in doing so, you're making it real, you're coming to understand it, you're, you're solidifying it in your memory, but then everyone's trying to piece together pieces. And, and one of the things I thought was so brilliant is that you get this, like, wait, you did what? I didn't see that. I need to do that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm coming back to, you know, I want to do it again. I want to do it again. Because it, I mean, there's not that many shows, honestly, where people are, are instantly feeling like they want to come back because they, there were key things they didn't get to do. And, and, and you have that, right? Repeat visitation that's... It's, it's crazy. I think that was never an intentional part of it. But what's happened, particularly with maybe the one-on-ones, if there are 16 locked doors, can you find them all, let alone can you get into them all? But yeah, I think it, we try and make it as dense as possible. So actually, if you do come back, there's always something else to find. Like nothing, no item of dressing, if there's a mug on the table that you saw before, if you look underneath it, you're going to find an inscription that actually pays off. Do you find that people are sharing their stories um, socially? Is that a big piece of it as well? How do they share it other than the pe with the people they went with? 
Well, that's a really interesting point because because the show's been on such a long time now, it's really evolved. And actually, um, we don't allow cell phones into the show. So really, it becomes... I mean, we, there was a huge amount of fan art generated, and now here in London, we're, like, putting up. But it's interesting because if you look at a lot of modern-day immersive work, so much of it is about particularly the immersive art explosion that we're... Uh, bear a witness to it becomes about capturing yourself within the work and putting it into your channels and we don't do that so if anything i feel like we're something of a relic of the past for stopping that now innate reaction to explorable artworks and um, we're asking ourselves if we were to do that what would the show like what new shows could we do where that's just not an annoying gimmick or distracting for other audience. What's the equivalent to the mask that enables a cell phone to exist inside a show? So as a last question, Felix, first of all, thank you for taking us through that amazing you know, journey of, of Sleep No More and your creative process with it. Where is Punch Drunk headed? What, what are you thinking about the evolution of your company and of the sort of space of immersive theater? I mean, you... You are one of these people. If if there's an uh, original gangster, an OG for immersive <laughs> theater, you're you're kind of the, the the man. Where do you see it heading, and and for you specifically? Well, I think there's a real need to evolve, and I think um, in the way that audiences are changing, we want to change too. Because if we're asking our audience to take risks and find it dangerous inside a building, then we need to be able to take risks and find it dangerous ourselves making them. So we're trying to break our own rule set again. And also another thing is, you know, the whole beginnings of this was wanting people to not know what's behind the door. Now they do. So therefore we need to adapt. So we're looking at how we can use technology. We're looking at, yeah, as I was saying about how you take, how you can use your cell phone, but not just to take bland pictures of yourself to post on Insta. And we're also looking at how can you tell other stories, how can you tell other people's stories rather than create alone? And we're definitely doing our next three projects that are going back to proper collaborations, but I don't think any of them will involve an audience in a mask, which is really exciting. Well, I can't wait to be taken down the rabbit hole with, <laughs> with you anytime. I am just so excited for the things to come from Punch Drunk and so appreciative of your creative talents and, and can't wait to be able to, to experience more of the memory-making, embodied hair on the back of my neck rising in <laughs> anticipation or like <laughs> the, just the, the feelings that I have when I'm inside one of your shows are, are very special and very unique and I'm very thankful for them. So thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to have been here. Can't wait to host you in London and uh, lift up the hood for you so you can look inside the machine. My sincere thanks again to Felix Barrett for joining me on today's podcast. To learn more about his work at Punch Drunk, please visit the links in the episode's description. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, please consider subscribing to the FOSS podcast and leaving us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also learn more about our other activities and become part of the FOSS community 
by signing up for our free monthly newsletter at fost.org. The FOST podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope to see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Thank you.